Creators, are you tired of being paid in clicks and likes? Social media and streaming platforms help people find your work, but getting you paid is another story. With Patreon, you can stop rolling the dice of ad revenue and per-stream payouts and grow your creative career through the direct support of the people who care the most, your fans. Since Patreon is billed for creators, not advertisers, you'll skip the middleman and develop a sustainable income source by offering a recurring membership to your fans. In turn, they'll get access to exclusive community, premium content, and the chance to become active participants in the work they love. The creative system is broken. So if you are a podcaster, a video maker, a musician, a writer, an illustrator, or a creative person of any kind, sign up on patreon.com now. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and change the way your creativity is valued by building the steady income stream you deserve. And also I wasn't alone. I mean, this was literally everyone I knew at that time had like a bag that was particularly good for shoplifting because it like had structure to it, you know? From the TED family of podcasts, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 15 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Miranda July talks about her latest film, about her life, and about shoplifting. In what way were we suffering so badly that we needed to steal so much from Kinko's? (laughs) But we did. Um... Today's sponsor... Lexus employs engineers who describe the phenomena that when a Lexus is truly doing its job, you don't notice most of what it's doing. Sounds a lot like what I aspire to do with visual design. For Lexus, the specifics of craft operate in the background in order to get out of the way of the emotion they are intended to evoke. Chief designer Keoichi Suga described it as being akin to how happiness works. As humans, we aren't necessarily conscious of being happy, but we know immediately when we are unhappy. We notice the absence of happiness, not necessarily happiness itself. That kind of thoughtfulness and curiosity is what drives innovation at Lexus. Check them out at www.lexus.com curiosity. It hardly matters what medium she's working in. It could be film, it could be fiction, it could be digital media, or performance art. Whatever it is, you always know it's work by Miranda July. Her singular combination of strangeness, humor, awkwardness, curiosity, great feeling, and beauty comes shining through in everything she touches. Her latest projects are the movie Kajillionaire, and a monograph of her life's work thus far. She joins me today from her home in Los Angeles to talk about both her life and her career. Miranda July, welcome to Design Matters. Hello. 
Miranda, the first thing I want to ask you about is your interest in the I Ching. I understand you've been using the same I Ching since you were a teenager and have said that you can fool yourself, but not the I Ching. (laughs) (laughs) Has it helped you navigate your life? Well, I don't want to overstate it. I mean, yes, I've had the same one that my friend Jonah Peretti in high school gave me trivia fact he went on to start buzzfeed oh wow he did so i guess they helped him and the huffington post um uh i usually only use it in times of great duress which those times are semi-regular so um that (laughs) that would cut across my whole life um but yeah, it's not it's not like a daily ritual unless I'm really suffering. And then, yeah, it kind of just like the thing you want to do really badly that's that's self-destructive. Um, it generally advises against that and towards a kind of patience that can be really, really hard if you're the only one like holding the torch for it, you know, like it, Mm -hmm. like I look for multiple sources to remind me that, that sometimes you just need to wait it out, like wait out that time. This is good advice for someone who tends to um, like jump. That's my default is action. So, I mean, that's a mixed thing. Yeah. You were born in Vermont as Miranda Grossinger but were raised in Berkeley, California, where your parents ran a sort of new age independent publishing house. And they worked on two very loud IBM Selectric typewriters. You and your brother helped out a lot with the business. What kinds of things did you assist with as you were growing up? I remember sorting mailings according to zip code. Um, (laughs) I remember the book rate stamp was pretty exciting to me. And then also just packing books, like learning how to pack books. I mean, really super practical stuff. I think by the time I had any skills, actual skills that I might have lent, I was no longer willing to work for North Atlantic Books. Yeah. Yeah. I read that you lost interest in school around the fifth grade. How come? Mm. Fifth grade. Wow. That sounds young. Um, <laughs> now that I have a child, I'm like, uh-oh, that's too soon. Um, honestly, I I think I was a little older when it kind of hit me like, oh, I, I thought I was going to be good at this, but I'm not. And I think I'd best put all my energy into something that I am good at. And I, I started writing and directing plays outside of school very pointedly not wanting to bother putting energy into things that would only amount to being a student production, like wanting them to be real things in the world. And I don't know if it was just like the sort of heartbreaking sexism that makes, you know, a teenage girl suddenly feel like she can't be smart enough in the, in a particular way. I mean, I, you know, had the kind of personality where that was like, forced me to kind of reinvent myself in a really proactive way. So it wasn't like a great loss, but I do remember a kind of sad moment of realization. You've talked about how loneliness is a very old, dear friend of yours. When did the sense of being lonely 
begin? Oh, yeah. I don't think there was a beginning. I think that was always there. Born that way? I don't know. Who can speculate about like whether it's your soul or whether it's all the circumstances. But I do remember from a such a young age, always being in conversation with either, I mean, this sounds, this isn't, this doesn't meet my standards now, but I considered it like a guardian angel um, was how I like in my angel, like having these com- sort of re- very reassuring conversations where she would kind of just let me know I was okay. Um, and then later literally making cassette tapes where I would do one half of the conversation and then have fill in the blanks. And so I could have a conversation with myself. Not that I was so alone. I had an older brother who I'm close to and always had really dear girl friends. But as I now have my own family and many friends, I can always refind it. And it's so much a part of me. I don't, yeah, it's not like something I'm trying to solve. Do you still have those tapes? I know you have quite an archive of your work. <laughs> yeah, actually I had there's there's one I remember um looking for it. It didn't I was desperate to find it and I knew I had saved it all these years. The only reason was cuz it was really incriminating and it had a lot of like conversation about sex on it with another girl and we were only in first grade and I I remember thinking that's too young. And this can never get in the wrong hands. And that's the only reason I still have it is because I could never dispose of it. I could never be careless with it. I always had to know where that was. It's interesting because you've stated that you've always been interested in sex, even as a kid. And there's a theme running through a lot of your work about childhood sexuality, whether it is the seven-year-old boy in your first full-length feature film, Me and You and Everyone We Know, or the two 11-year-old girls and the relationship that they have in Something That Needs Nothing, a story from your first book, No One Belongs Here More Than You. Where does this fascination come from? Yeah, I don't know what's normal. I I think, you know, it's tied to the loneliness, like from what I can tell. If we're wanting love or if we have a lot of longing, like that can become sexualized really early and forever. And like that sort of longing feels sexual. And for a kid, I mean, I've always liked things that were kind of... um, not allowed. Um, so that was clearly not allowed. And, and yet kids knew stuff. And um, yeah, my friend had like an older sister. So sh- she kind of knew everything. Although on this tape, it's really obvious that there's some big holes in our basic understanding. Um, but the main word we use a lot is screwing, which is a funny, <laughs> a funny word for, <laughs> for like a six-year-old girl, like a lot of talk about screwing. Where do you think you would have heard that word? Only from her older sibling. Uh, like, yeah. Okay. yeah. I think we didn't know of any other words. So that was the one we used. Yeah. When you were 16, you co-created a zine called Snarla about two friends named Ida and July. And you did this with Johanna Fateman, who characterized it in your monograph in large part by a kind of petty criminality or manic disregard costumed as punk feminist praxis. (laughs) And so I'm wondering if you would agree with that, especially at the time you were making it. Did you have the sense of being sort of this post-feminist moment? 
moment. Yeah, well, I mean, we didn't know we were post-feminist, but we definitely had this very entitled sense of reclamation. Um, I say entitled because like, in what way were we suffering so badly that we needed to steal so much from Kinko's? Um, But we did. (laughs) Um, Yeah, to make all those copies. And we also, I mean, I discovered that their passport photos were taken with the same film that fit into the 60s Polaroid land camera. And they stored that film just right the cabinets that had the like paper cutter on them and all the supplies, if you opened them, there was paper and there was also like, you know, dozens of boxes of this really expensive film. So so you stole the film. I stole from Kinko's. I mean, there's no way I could have bought that film, but we were figuring out how to be writers and we did both become writers. And, and that was the start. And we were mostly writing about each other, honestly. I mean, we were like, had a, a really big, friendship, you know, in which we were like figuring out our, like what we thought politically and in terms of art and our sexuality and our, you know, feminist politics and music. And, you know, so it was, there was a lot of ground we were covering. Johanna came up with the name July and you legally changed it in your early twenties. And you said it was through your friendship with Johanna that you really became an artist. Was that because of the way that you were making art or talking about art or was she challenging you in some way to think differently? I think of it this way, like we met in basketball camp, like we both still had long hair and we were like, I don't know, maybe I think she actually was good at basketball. She was good at a lot of things. Uh, but I don't know why I was joining. I was, uh, it was like a summer JV basketball camp. And we literally went to one day of it, met there, discovered we lived like a couple blocks away from each other and just didn't go back. And we, within months, had both cut off all our hair. Or no, I, I, she went for like a um, Debbie Harry. She's like, I'm just going to fuck my hair up. And I remember thinking, well, I really cut all my hair off. <laughs> like yours still looks really pretty. Like, um, but we both just became like increasingly punker and, and kind of like our relationship to school did really change and our voice as like young women became the primary thing. Um, and she actually left she was so smart that she graduated a year early all of a sudden and went to read, which was the only reason I started visiting Portland. Yeah. Well, you went to the University of Santa Cruz, but dropped out in your second year before moving to Portland. At that point, you said you approached the world with a thief's mindset. <laughs> in, in what way? Well, I think somehow the like, scrappy sort of DIY attitude that frankly, my whole family had. I mean, you know, you run your own business in the house, everything is sort of recycled. Any way that you could not spend money on something had to be good. And so I actually felt sort of guilty if I bought things. And I felt like I had done something like morally right if I stole them. I mean, I know it it seems like how could, you know, and then I'm sure there was some sort of like undertow problem. I mean, who does that if they don't on some level, not so much want to get caught, but like really enjoy a dare, you know, like I did have this from a really young age, 
this like, I'll do anything on a dare. Um, and it was kind of a continuation of that, like the high of it and have, and, and also I wasn't alone. I mean, this was literally everyone I knew at that time had like a bag that was particularly good for shoplifting. Cause it like had structure to it, you know? Yeah. Maybe you were stealing because you felt like you didn't have enough. Yeah. Like I was hungry on a lot of different levels. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I read that you were fired from your waitressing job for embezzling, but you've said that you actually weren't doing that. You were fired from Goodwill yeah. for shoplifting. Which I you did. You were caught shoplifting, Neosporin at a drugstore. I remember shoplifting as a kid too, but mostly it was because I was jealous that people had things that I didn't and I wanted them really badly. Right. I mean, you know, I've come back to this in my work. There's a way in which that all ties in with the longing, right? And especially if you're like longing on some sort of deeper soul level, you know, it can really feel material. After you arrived in Portland, you started a video chain letter for female filmmakers to share their work. Initially, you called this the big moviola, but after a cease and desist letter from Moviola Digital, you changed the name to Joni for Jackie. And you've stated that you approached the project as if it were a job, though your actual jobs at the time were waitressing, cashiering, stripping, locksmithing, and taste making for Coca-Cola. So you, you actually named a Coca-Cola beverage, I believe. Mm-hmm. Was it Coca-Cola 2? Is that right? It was Coke 2, yeah. The most <laughs> brilliant name anyone's ever come up with. Um, yeah. What was stripping like for you? Um, it wasn't like a a wild idea in the culture that I was living uh, in the midst of. So, I mean, in a practical sense, I remember my girlfriend and I broke up so, and she moved out. And so we were short one third of our rent and me and my friend who were left got to the end of the month and we're like, what are we going to do? Um, and she said, well, one of us could strip and I can't be me cause I wear glasses. And so I went down and did it. Um, went down to Mary's spot in Portland I mean, in a most practical sense, I was like, oh, I can do less work for more money and have more time to make my movies and performances and do Joni for Jackie, which was increasingly all those things were taking a lot of time. And if I could make a bunch of money and go on tour, that was huge for me. And also it came out of sort of a general interest in strangers um, and, and like intimacy between strangers and also in the dare thing. I mean, you're not supposed to do that. That's like the main thing you're not supposed to do as a young woman is take off your clothes in front of strange men. Like, so to cross over that threshold was a little like having a superpower, like, oh, this is no big deal at all. Like, not only can I survive this, but I can kind of twist this to my own means is how it felt. So I, w- I didn't have to feel fragile in a way that I think I had felt growing up. And that was a lot of what I think I was doing at that time was kind of testing out, like, am I perhaps stronger than I was led to believe coming out of my family? And ultimately I'd be like, oh, I'm strong enough, not just to do this, but to like stand on stage doing my work in front of a thousand people, you know, like this 
bravery can be put to better use. Miranda, there's a lot of physicality in a lot of your movies, body physicality. And I get the sense that you're very comfortable in your own skin. You seem to use your body with a great deal of ease. Am I right about that? Yeah, it's something I don't think about a lot, but I guess that's turning out, that's true, yeah. It's it's something that I've tried to figure out in watching a lot of your work, how you can get so comfortable with your own skin in your own body. You seem to have almost a lack of self-consciousness of it at all. And is that something that you've always had? Yeah, I think it a little bit has to do with performing. It's sort of like going through the atmosphere to the moon or something like a whole lot of stuff just burns off from the sheer intensity of that process. And like some of the things that are burned away are like a layer of self-consciousness that since there's nothing I wouldn't do if I if I had a reason on stage, you know, I, I, I feel so free there. Um, like, I don't understand the taboos that have to do with the body. Like you have this one thing, this is it, really, this very finite physical being. And so to be particularly um, hung up with it or hide it or not make use of all the ways it can be just seems sort of heartbreaking to me. So, um, so I'll, you know, sometimes I think just in daily life, I'll move in a strange way or take off my clothes or something just to, um, just to have made use of it in that day. Do you ever feel self-conscious? I do. I know exactly that feeling, but I think I enjoy the feeling of remembering that doesn't matter, that it's like a, a feeling like a little shame and then, and then the joy that comes from blowing past it. Um, yeah, it's not like it's not there. It is. Um, but it's, it's sort of exquisite to realize like it, it has so much less power than it thinks it has. So you just push through the discomfort. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, there's a whole vast world here waiting on the other side. And it's the water's fine here. You know, we are going to take a short break and I'll be right back with Miranda July. Back in 2017, I curated an exhibit called Text Me, How We Live in Language at the Museum of Design Atlanta. The collection was focused on the intersection of visual imagery and language and how language is the connecting factor among the human race. It was built upon my belief that we live in and through words. We use words to express and define our reality. Somehow, by having these concrete messages in one specific place where we can all view them at the same time, maybe we'll get to enjoy that feeling of being fundamentally connected. Today's sponsor, Lexus, has a similar philosophy. One of their core practices is borrowed from the Japanese service and hospitality industry, and it is called Kigo. Kigo refers to words and phrases in the Japanese language that are used in a formal situation or that show respect and civility to each other. It's considered one of the most polite forms of communication, and Lexus wanted to apply that sense of respect when designing their cars. This is one of the many ways Lexus puts people at the center of their brand. To learn more about Lexus, visit www.lexus.com. 
www.thinkandgrowthpodcast.com slash curiosity. In your story, Something That Needs Nothing, there's a lot of heartbreak in that story Mm -hmm. for a lot of reasons. But at the end of the story, I kind of got the sense that you were comfortable in the heartbreak, that that was... Like you were, you were comfortable feeling all the feelings that had to do with heartbreak. Mm. And I was wondering, because that you've said that that story was one of the two more autobiographical things that you've written, that that was something that was true of yourself as well, that you didn't shy away from heartbreak or resist heartbreak in any way. Well, the romance that I was writing about there was like, was truly devastating, uh, but Yesterday I was, I was with a friend and, um, I'd been kind of high. She knew I'd been sort of high for various reasons, including like my movie just came out and, you know, I sort of in an unusual space the last couple of weeks. Um, but I was feeling sad yesterday and I was feeling sad about feeling sad, like about coming back to this kind of sadness. And I said to her, well, the thing about the high is it's only itself, but the sadness leads to everywhere else. Like it's the road through my work usually to a million new thoughts and ideas and projects and feelings. So as much as I loved feeling just kind of happy for a little while, um, it doesn't lead anywhere new. It just is itself, which is sort of the great thing about joy. Like it is itself in the moment. It's, um, uh, you're kind of suspended. Let's talk about your latest film, Kajillionaire. I can't imagine that it's not devastating for it to have been released during this really crazy, surreal time. Yeah. I mean, there was a point in the year where I was like kind of couldn't even really talk about it when people would bring yeah. it up. Like, and I under you know, as we all did, we understood that our particular disappointment was echoed in the disappointment of every person we knew. Um, but my particular one was like, I was really excited to go back to Cannes. I, this was my year of travel, you know, for a person who mostly is at home writing and, and to just have to move on. And, you know, the biggest thing was to not have the movie come out, um, in theaters. And so, I mean, I always remind myself like the thing you fear is not exactly what will end up happening, you know, and it, it, it hasn't been. And I guess the thing I couldn't have guessed was that the most important thing is that the movie connect with people and who's to say whether being in the midst of a pandemic helps or hurts that, as long as they can watch it, um, which actually they can. (laughs) I began to actually think maybe I, I mean, not like I'm a prophet at all. I don't mean (laughs) that, but like maybe weirdly I made this for us now. Like I, I am just kind of a believer in, in understanding reality as it plays out, you know, uh, rather than thinking some other thing was supposed to happen. Like, no, this is what was supposed to happen because this is what happened. And yeah, so many things that I thought were very personal to me, that that inborn loneliness, a kind of a level of anxiety that in the movie is 
tied to the big one, um, the idea of sort of surviving or not surviving this natural disaster. Um, and just a million other little things that as people started to watch it, I, I was like, oh, I think they're taking it more the way I meant it than they were in my brief experience. You know, it, it played at Sundance and it went very well, but this is different. The movie's less weird in a way because the world got weirder. Yeah, I mean, I've been, Miranda, I've been a fan of your work since your early days before your first film when you were doing performance art. I'd heard about you and I've been following you and I've seen all your movies, read your book of short stories, your novel. I, I do think that this is your best work. I think Jillionaire is absolutely brilliant. I think it's really hard to watch at times and I think it is sort of weirdly prophetic. Um the scene where old Olio is about to get a massage and then can't be touched, mm -hmm. can't allow herself to be touched, was just one of the most powerful moments in cinema that I could remember in the last couple of years. I, it took my breath away. Mm, thank you. It is really a tour de force. Congratulations. It's a beautiful, beautiful movie. Huh. What's interesting is you've said this about the characters, which is fair and you feel, but I think there's a, there's even more to it. You say there's a nasty, villainous, slightly evil righteousness to this particular family. To those parents. Yeah. To those parents. Yes. Yeah. To the parents. Because they are. I mean, and you kind of are hoping, I mean, at least I was hoping like, they they have to redeem themselves. They have to end up being good. I, maybe for my own selfish needs, but but they're not. And how hard was it to write such evil characters? I mean, I guess what I was most interested in was their logic to themselves. They're they're right. It's their daughter who's strayed and and needs to be brought back into the fold and. You know, I it was so important to me that as as this daughter character gets free, like for the first time we suddenly see her without the parents in Melanie's apartment, that all she wants to do is go home. Like she's super antsy, like she wants to go back. And um and I I really relate to that. Like it's so satisfying in movies when people just get free and they go to New York and they, you know, they're but but I've never been able to do that. Like it that cleanly like it's always two steps forward one step back and that's like the the ache of life to me um yeah yeah the movie is about a family of of small time con artists a mom played by deborah winger incredibly what a what a just a brilliant casting um a dad played by richard jenkins and their 27 year old daughter who heists their way through life evan rachel wood plays old Olio. um you've described kajillionaire as deeply personal but not autobiographical um given how much research i did in your past about feeling nervous about bringing clothes into the house when they were new when <laughs> you were little and the the various um shoplifting escapades. I was wondering if if it was influenced a bit by your sense of what people feel they're entitled to or not. Yeah, I think I've I've always been aware of that. Um that being an outsider didn't necessarily make you radical, that that could have its own rigidity to it. 
and being conventional didn't mean that you weren't avant-garde in terms of like this emotional space you were creating. Like that's something I think I, like I came out of my family, like sort of desperate to prove. Um, And that is partly the privilege of like growing up in Berkeley and like the heart of outsider-ness, you know, Um, and yet not feeling free exactly. Um, And yeah, I mean, I think for me, the trick always is to find the story, the fiction that can hold all, all of these feelings. And it has to be a fiction because I have to be somewhat unaware of the story I'm telling. And, and in that way, it can like come from the depths. It's free. It's not self-conscious. It can be smarter than me in a way because I can only intellectually go so far and we've already established I'm not even that confident um, about that side of things. But there, there is this other kind of agility, um, this like sort of fluidity. And if, if I can be caught up in the, the sort of joy of that, I mean, even when it's heartbreaking, like that's, that's why there's humor in these things is because I'm having a pretty good time making it. It just so happens to be devastating, you know, like I got, you know, I got (laughs) to the end of of writing that first draft and really was kind of like, oh, no, how did I end up here? You know, like of all places, this is like I never would have willingly gone into this heartbreak between parents and children. Yeah. There was a moment in the movie where it feels and it's probably about 15 minutes, maybe not even, maybe 10 minutes before it ends, where everything makes sense. Every single decision that you made as the writer and director makes sense at that moment. Was that an arduous process? I lo- It was a lot. Of, I mean, there's a lot of craft in there. I mean, that's where all the rewrites and then continuing into the editing process, realizing like, oh, I got this far with the script, but I can refine this and make it even sort of tighter. And that's, I mean, alongside this process with the unconscious is this like person figuring out how to write and how to tell a story. And, and I'm, you know, alternating between fiction and movies to do that. So I'm using a lot of, you know, muscles that got strong in writing The First Bad Man. Um, I think I had was sort of warm and ready for this. And I, I mean, I really love that um, in other things, you know, like there's a nerdy side of me that just loves where there's the moment where suddenly you look back and it all makes sense, but in a different way. Um, Yeah. And so I remember thinking, this is a little dicey. It's one thing to do this with a book because you can always keep changing it till it works. But with a movie the more you can move those pieces around, the more free you are to do that, the more if it doesn't work, you can still fix it. But I knew that wasn't going to be the case with this movie because past a certain point, as you said, it all has to work. So I remember watching the rough cut, which is always agonizing for a director. Like, And it's just the, the movie put together all in a row according to the script. And so I, I watched it. I was felt like jumping out a window um, and put my head down. And I really felt bad. I was like, I don't want to be crying when I lift my head up because that's so hard for the editor. And this is like my first day with this new editor. And and finally, I realized 
ah, it's, I'm going to have my head down forever. You know, I just need to, and I sat up and I said, still, you know, she could see I was like crushed. There was so much work ahead of us. And I was like, but I think the ending works. <laughs> and it was yeah. like, I knew that that was like kind of the main thing, you know, like we, anything else we could repair. Um, yeah. 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 No, it's, it's an exquisite ending. You've written, directed, and starred in all your movies, but you didn't have an acting role in Kajillionaire. You said that the fact that there was no role for you in this movie was a relief. But there's also a part of me that thought, given how youthful you look, you could have played <laughs> old Olio. Um, what made you decide to deliberately keep yourself out of the movie? Oh, well, I mean, for one thing, I yeah, I don't, I don't think I, that's a very nice compliment. I don't think I could have done that. But um, in thinking that I had no part, I got really excited right away about all the female roles I was about to cast and like a female lead, you know, like I've never had that to offer. And I had already in my mind that this next third movie, whatever it was going to be, was going to be bigger and so it kind of fit with that. I was like, oh, for it to be bigger, like like I'm okay with this movie to have like familiar faces. I think that's interesting. And now I have something to offer a familiar face. I have like a, a great role, you know. Um, and so that was just only exciting to me. Yeah. In the movie, one of my favorite lines is most happiness comes from dumb things. And I'm wondering if you agree. And if so, what dumb things bring you happiness? It's funny. I <laughs> Clothes. There's no point in clothes for me other than pleasure. Um, like it's just a thing I do every day. Clearly, I mean, being in quarantine makes that even more clear. Like, why do I keep putting on these outfits? And it's like, it's just just joy, you know, just makes me happy. And um, kissing is kind of a dumb thing that makes me happy. Um, I only like to cook sweet things. Um, <laughs> not much of a cook at all, except for like cakes and cookies and things like that. Um, so more of a pastry chef, than yeah. a cook, more of a baker than a cook. Yeah. Yeah. Which is not like super useful as a parent, except for joy for this. Like it's, it's not a well-rounded thing I'm providing. Yeah. Um, that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Just those three things. Yes, those, those, those are wonderful Kissing, things. cakes, and clothes. Yeah. Um, Miranda, my last question for you is about a quote from the artist Starley Kine that closes your monograph. She states that you recently told her that you don't feel like you've done anything really great ever. And Starley goes on to state that you didn't mean this in a self-deprecating way. Rather, it was like a bar that you have inside you that lets you know that you have to keep pushing towards something you don't feel you've yet reached. So my question is this. Do you think you'll ever get there? And if so, do you think you'll be able to recognize that you've arrived? Oh, uh, probably not. I mean... Yeah, it's funny. I said it to her more just speaking, trying to describe the like agitation, um, the the unrest that I live in, that it's not like I'm walking around in this like deeply satisfied state. You know, I'm 
really proud of Kajillionaire, except for all the parts that I think I could have done better, <laughs> you know? So, um, and there's always those parts to everything. Uh, so, and I think that unrest is just, it's not solvable. It's not supposed to be solved. It's like what you get if you're an artist. Like in a way, it's a gift. It is its own reward, sort of. Uh, but it do, it means that like you can't be seeking peace is not like the ultimate, like you can't have that be the thing that you're trying to get to because uh, it really, yeah, I mean, it feels pretty clear that that's not going to happen. But there are some really, really great fleeting moments. And those are so wonderful to have witnessed. Miranda July, thank you so much for sharing your original and beautiful voice. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you so much. Miranda July's latest movie is Kajillionaire, and it is remarkable. And you can see a monograph of her work as well. It has just been published by Prestel. You can see a comprehensive overview of her work on her website at mirandajuly.com. This is the 16th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED family of podcasts by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland.